Welcome to Wire Dads. I am Alex Steed. I will be joined by my co-host Sarah Marshall momentarily. Before we start, we wanted to offer this super quick note about today's episode of Wire Dads. First, you should know that if you haven't watched the Saw series or the Saga, as we're calling Saws 1 through 7, you don't need to have done so in order to follow along with our conversation. At least our first hour is about themes, and then we break down all the plots with our very special guest, New York Times columnist and tremendous photographer, Jamel Bowie. So uh, don't feel like you need to be a super fan of Saw or even have delved yourself (laughs) in order to follow along, at least for the lion's share of this conversation. Second, uh, as I just said, we are joined by our guest Jamel Bowie. It was going to be a surprise, but it you know it's hard to organize surprises with uh, guests when you have to schedule on Zoom. And I went by surprise. I mean, it was going to be a surprise for Sarah, but it's uh, it's hard to coordinate that sort of thing when we're all in different parts of the country. And found out that Jamel was watching Saw independent of knowing he was going to be on the show. And I sneakily asked if he would be involved and he enthusiastically said yes. Uh, however, atypical to our usual format, uh, our introduction alone, which is again where we lay out a lot of our themes, is 33 minutes long. It's just between Sarah and me. I just want to give you the heads up in case you're here for Jamel and wondering what the hell we're talking about <laughs> with regard to him being a special guest. He will show up. You'll know that we're entering part two, the Jamel part of this episode, when you hear the musical interlude. To many, Saw is a series that is synonymous with gore, but I just want to assure you that we don't linger too much on any of it. There are passing descriptions of the traps for which the movies are famous, but we tried really hard to focus on drama and not to linger on things that might be unsettling. We don't get deep into it. There aren't more than a few sentences that are devoted to the gory elements of these films. And we do talk about the, quote, torture porn trope just want to give you the heads up that if you are a person who's like ah, i don't know if i can listen to uh conversations about saw just know that we don't roll around <laughs> for lack of a better phrase in the gore if you feel so inclined you can support wire dads by way of our patreon we feature bonus episodes just about weekly and there will be one with more saw odds and ends in other subjects later this week if you are not in a position to support financially we wholly understand these are weird times and we are just glad that you are here all right let's get into the saga it's a very interesting person. His name is John. He has an inoperable frontal lobe tumor. Sick from the disease eating away at me inside. Sounds like our friend Jigsaw. Sick of people who don't appreciate their blessings. Looks like our guy likes to book himself up the seats to his own sick book games. Hello, Mark. Paul, Amanda, Sam, Adam, Dr. Gordon. I want to play a game. Most people are so ungrateful to be alive. But not you. Not anymore. Ah! Ah! Game over. Hello, Sarah Marshall. Hello, Alex Steed. You, our listener friend, have joined Why Are Dads, which is a show that is about the impact of dads, kind of. Really, it's a show about feelings, but we try to understand dads by watching movies and understand the impact of dads in those movies, I guess. Is that correct, Sarah? Yes. 
I think that's what we do. <laughs> what are we talking about today? We are talking about saw, saw two, saw three, saw four, saw five, saw six, and saw 3D, the final chapter. And why are we talking about saw? We're talking about saw because I love saw so much <laughs> and because I wanted to talk about the dad themes in saw, of which I think there are many. We are also talking about Saw because our former guest and noted public intellectual, Jamel Bowie, also likes Saw. And we just decided to, you know, just trying. If one person watches Saw because of this episode, I will be happy. So maybe you can be, for the price of a cup of coffee, you could watch <laughs> Saw. <laughs> Uh, while it's just you and I, can we just get really into some of the details and the dad themes of these movies? Mm -hmm. What people need to know is that Saw is about a man whose name is John, whose name is also Jigsaw. And then he kind of sets up a code that he lives by, which was informed by his trauma and his insights to get people to live their lives to the fullest. And in order to do that, he makes them play a game, which is actually kind of a torture test. Yes. So one of the final lines in Saw, which is clearly intended for the viewer, is so many people are so ungrateful to be alive, but not you, not anymore. And I feel as if the first Saw is like a very good horror thriller that stands on its own and its theme, which I think is a sufficient theme for one movie, is people don't appreciate life until they have it snatched away from them. And the character of John Jigsaw Killer Kramer, who also is like, I never wanted anyone to call me Jigsaw. And it's like, really? You didn't think the press would do that when you cut jigsaw puzzle piece shaped <laughs> bits of skin out of your victims bodies you didn't think that would happen john whatever he says it was supposed to symbolize that this person was incomplete as if someone was supposed to read that from that thing that was yeah they're like oh we're just gonna keep calling him the anonymous unnamed killer of general american <laughs> city and he seems to think that his victims were incomplete. It's like, <laughs> know your audience, dude. Yeah, the argument that we get in the first movie is, or not the argument, the statement of purpose, I guess, is that John Kramer has terminal cancer. One of the people he kidnaps is Dr. Lawrence Gordon, is a doctor who has no bedside manner to speak of. And that's his only crime, really. That and that he thinks about cheating on his wife. The, the thing about Jigsaw is that he is watching you. He knows if you've been bad or good. And he knows if you've been just a little bit not the greatest person in the world. And he might just randomly decide to put you through a torture test because of that. It's interesting because as we get to know him more and we get to know his proximity to these people, it doesn't seem evident that he had any more information on any of these people than just meeting them in passing. Yeah, the worst we see this doctor be in his family is he's asked by his wife and his daughter to come put the girl to bed because she thinks that someone's in the closet. And he takes an extra 15 seconds to complete on his laptop. And we think that we're going to see that he's the type of person who shuts his family out entirely, but he takes an extra 15 seconds to be fully mm -hmm. available to put his daughter to bed and is then 
lovely. Unacceptable. It turns out maybe, as we'll touch on within, John is projecting a little bit from his life like a true dad. I don't know. I don't know where you would get that. Yeah. And then the thing about John Kramer that we learn over time, and then I think this movie gives us the space to realize, is that he says he has this highfalutin philosophy and that anyone who survives his test will be instantly rehabilitated and he's selling his, you know, death encounter torture therapy as a cure for like addiction, suicidal ideation, depression, self-harm. And it's like, John, obviously it doesn't work that way because you're ba- it's like he's running a, a series of spas, you know, and it's like he's claiming that he has this great weight loss <laughs> method, but like he invented it on himself and he's now like torturing himself to maintain it and it just he knows it doesn't work but he already has all these franchises because like his whole thing is that he began to appreciate being alive after he was diagnosed with cancer but he is using his precious time on this earth not to try and reconnect with his ex-wife or to spend time with other human beings who he isn't murdering he's well he's spending time creating proteges right he's he's creating a legacy yes he's creating a legacy and then again like any like any dad who's trying to pass on uh lessons learned through his very specific trauma and believes that his very specific trauma has to be replicated exactly to match the lesson that was conveyed to him he sets up a legacy by bringing on proteges browbeating a handful of them into (laughs) becoming exactly him and then there's a when he's out of the way his legacy lives on Mm -hmm. between these people who are kind of in conflict with each other to make sure that the legacy is exacted precisely how dad wanted it right and they're all sparring over who can be the superior protege and so the main proteges of his that we see in the series are amanda who's a victim in the first movie and who then joins forces with him and hoffman who's a crooked cop who takes over basically as the guy who's setting up all of Jigsaw's traps, but is still the least interesting person in the movies in a way. Um, Although he's very dear to me in his boringness as a character. (laughs) And one of the reasons that we wanted to do this episode with this timing was because I feel like this to me is like a very honest story about what it is to try and honor your father by following in his footsteps, which is that you die. Everybody dies. There's just mutually assured destruction, maybe not as literally as in this movie, but on an emotional scale in listening to what your scary dad says about what you have to do because it so totally worked for him, even though it obviously didn't. And that's why you're hiding out in a warehouse right now. Exactly. You make such a good point. Okay, let's just say, John, this worked for you. What is the ideal situation for someone who appreciates life now? (laughs) Oh, it's squirreling away in a lair and bringing in people (laughs) to teach them how to set up very elaborate torture tests. (laughs) It seems like maybe there's a flaw in that logic, Dad. Sarah and I have been texting about Saw nonstop for the past handful of days. And as you brought up earlier, there's a scene in which John 
chides Hoffman, who's this uh, this protege character, for basically using an inferior material for a knife. For a blade, for a pendulum blade. He's like, you have to use tempered steel for the long haul. And it's like, I don't know that he wanted to use this pendulum on more than one victim, John. Like, it seems like you're making a lot of assumptions. And again, that's just like <laughs> such a beautiful dad thing where it's like, you failed this test you didn't even know that you were engaged in. There was a test and you failed it, you idiot. You can't possibly have done as well as I did the first go round. And part of this is that the way these movies were constructed is like Christmas ribbon candy, where like we spend the first couple movies working our way up to the events of the third movie, which is where Jigsaw, who has terminal cancer, much like Earl Partridge, finally dies. Um, and then we spend the next three movies jumping back in time to be like, and also, this was also happening in that story that we already saw. And it complicates it in this way. And this character met Jigsaw like this. And this is what happened before. So, like, the movie, uh, basically starting in the fourth installment, starts writing fan fiction of itself. And one of the things we <laughs> learned later on in the game is that Hoffman is just a killer cop. Like he just likes to shoot people randomly. That's his thing that he does. But when he and Jigsaw meets, Jigsaw is negging him about not being a good enough murderer. And there's actually a part. So first he negs him about the pendulum he built to kill his victim in a Jigsaw copycat trap. And then he's like, you're not a true killer. That's your dilemma. And it's like, you're the one who builds machines to kill people for you. Like, at least give this asshole credit for being a murderer. (laughs) (laughs) In his universe, you can do everything perfectly. You can do everything as it was instructed. But if you don't do it in the spirit of the reason it was initially constructed, you have failed. Right. I feel like working for Jigsaw, it's like the kind of job you would quit in a huff after six months and be like, you know what? If you want to do it all yourself, you should just do it yourself because I am more than a pair of hands. I have my own ideas about being a murderer. (laughs) The other trap that I, I realized is that even though his code is in theory simple, there are so many different ways to transgress that you only learn about after you have transgressed. Mm-hmm. I find that to be resonant with a lot of the stuff that we talk about all the time. Mm-hmm. We've talked in other contexts about how we have old dads and we relate to old dad characters in one way or another. And like Jigsaw is very much, I mean, he's literally an old dad. And we look at this person as a person who was traumatized dealt with it poorly and then took it out on everybody else first of all there's some real rich dad Mm -hmm. material there but by the time he is an expectant father he must be in his Mm mid-50s he's the sort of guy that just fixes and tinkers with stuff all the time alone you know he's got that temperament of like you will never see the shit that i've seen (laughs) yeah and you're just like what kind of a dad would you have been to your real kid. Like there's a part that we that we love in this in one of the movies. I think it's the fourth one where John Kramer has his at the time pregnant wife Jill Kramer, Jill Tuck, or as we call her Jill Saw, to his workshop and he shows her something he has made for their baby boy. <laughs> and it is what we all know now as the Billy puppet, which is the puppet with blood red spirals on his cheeks 
and a little black suit <laughs> and a little red bow tie who like wheels out his tricycle and tells you that you should be grateful that you're alive <laughs> once you've like ripped a key out of someone's intestines and used it to get a reverse bear trap off your head. He's like, this is for our baby, Jill. I'm excited. If you know nothing about Saw, but you close your eyes and I say Saw and you imagine the most terrifying puppet in the world because that's just <laughs> associated with this movie through all of its marketing until fucking Annabelle came along. That's what you imagine, right? So what is this puppet's origin story? Oh, well, guess what? It is a toy that this fucker was going to give to his kid that he never had. And then he reverse engineered this scenario in which he was going to be the best dad ever. And since he can't be the kind of dad that would give this puppet to his kid, he's going to torture you to death. And he's going to torture other dads who yell at their kid one time or who wait 15 seconds before checking the closet for the murderer that you asked to be inside of it that night. Yeah, I think that there's a progression in the victims in these movies where the first three, it's like Jigsaw torturing dads because he couldn't be a dad. So he has to basically murder other dads who he feels are failing in some way. Then the person in the trap in the fourth movie is a detective. After that, it's just randos. It's just people who we have no connection with. Jigsaw has no connection with. They're just sort of people who weren't nice and who we're going to watch bad things happen to. And just the, I think the way that the killers become the main characters over time in this movie is fascinating. And it's the only piece of media that attempts to get into the mind of a serial killer except for like Shadow of a Doubt by Alfred Hitchcock and, you know, and a few other random things that I don't think is totally asinine because I'm like, yes, this seems like a reasonable portrait of a serial killer who A, says he's not a serial killer, even though he totally is. B, doesn't really seem to care that much about the media, isn't courting the media, at least according to him. And C, is just like, thinks that what he's doing is normal and makes sense and is like the sanest action available to him. And you're like, yeah, I believe that you do. Like, it's not, but I know that you think that. He's extraordinarily charming, not because he's smart necessarily, because like for a lot of the reasons in, in the logic we just we just poked holes in, he's not necessarily, I mean, he's smart in that he is an engineer, but I like how in spite of all of this, he has an arresting smile you know, he has like twinkly eyes and he's still a prick. <laughs> Tobin Bell in this movie playing Jigsaw has the issue that the guy who played Wayne Grow had in Heat, which is that he has really nice smile lines. And you're like, <laughs> I know that you're playing a horrible person, but you have ended up with the face that you deserve. And you seem like less of a horrible person than you are in this movie. I think it works better in this than it does in Heat, where you're just like, why does that clearly unhinged guy who's going to get everyone killed have such a nice face? There are two things I wanted to to try and touch on. One is the torture porn concept, and two is the way that Jigsaw dies at the end of Saw 3, because mm. we didn't talk about it in our discussion with Jamel, and to me it's important to like who Jigsaw is, basically. All right. So one of the things that is obviously divisive about these movies is the concept that they are torture porn, which is what they're always described as. And when I'm like, I love Saw, people are like, is it not torture porn? And I'm like, well, I can't say that it isn't, but like maybe we should talk about 
what do we mean by that term and like what does it refer to? Because I have a theory that this term, which we started to hear in the early to mid aughts, I think, refers a lot more accurately to those weird French movies that I watched in college. Oh, yes. Like Martyrs. Like Martyrs. And like that one where the lesbian and the trucker are the same person the whole time. And it's the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. Oh, yeah. Yeah. High High tension. Hoot tension. Yes. (laughs) I'm sure our pronunciation is flawless. Yeah. But I mean, what, what, like, what do you take this term to mean? And like, as someone who also loves horror as a genre, like, how do you navigate that terminology? Well, I fell victim to the hype, I would say, around the naysaying around this this term. So I believed it that there were movies that basically relied too much on this torturous element rather than the psychology that uh, goes into a good horror movie. And that is exactly not the truth. As a result, didn't watch these movies for a long time. But I, I thought that that term was born of this movie. I thought that that term was the term that came out when people were saying it's a reason not to like Saw, it's a reason not to like the the movies that come out of this. Saw comes out in 2004, Hostel comes out in 2005, and then Saw 2, which they made as fast as they possibly could, comes out Halloween 2005 and is substantially more gory than the first movie. Yeah, Saw and Hostel together is what I associate it with. But maybe it was just Saw. But it's funny because the first Saw movie is like, and I understand how people would would call it, call the series that based on the first movie because I think that a lot of movies that people remember as being very gory are not actually that gory, but what they are is good, right? So like the Texas Chainsaw Massacre, not a gory movie. It is a very effective movie. And then something like Ready or Not, where you have people literally exploding is like a horror comedy. And I think that, you know, Saw is one of those movies where like, it's like Seven in the sense that you're seeing the aftermath of crimes much more often than you're seeing anything actually happen to someone. But the movie is built around this set piece where Carrie Elways has to saw his own foot off. You see just like one or maybe two seconds of actual saw in contact with human flesh and like a little blood effect. And the rest of it is acting. But, like, it's Carrie Elways, and he's a leading man in this, and he is giving it 110%. And I, I, if we remember it as torture porn because he did such a great job, then, like, oh, well. I do think that Saw itself, I'm not going to say the series, because the series is a whole different... The series grows and changes over time. Yes, it's its own phenomena. It camp in a delightful, delightful way. I would say that Saw is great the same way that Texas Chainsaw Massacre is great, in that it's like of a specific time, it's of a specific grit, it is gross in its atmosphere, but not in in the actual scenarios, Mm -hmm. and you know, the same way that people believe that they saw a body get placed on a meat hook and they saw the hook go mm-hmm. into a back in Texas Chainsaw Massacre and they did not at all. That happened in their brain. That happens a lot in Saw because of the psychology of the movie is really good mm-hmm. because this, frankly, it was a bad era for popular horror. Yeah, it was. It was very bad, actually. Remarkably bad. <laughs> 
And so this kind of got maybe unfairly grouped. Well, it also did really well financially and it became a behemoth, you know, and then every Halloween there was a new Saw movie. So anytime something is that popular, it's easy to imagine that it can't possibly be good. Totally. Well, in, in the reason I bring up the horror stuff is because I remember seeing and just being repulsed by the Texas Chainsaw remake. Yeah, which I also hated. <laughs> that to me was the pinnacle of like torture porn because instead of recreating anything interesting about the first movie it was just like how about we make this violence real loud have we thought about putting a gun in a vagina horrendous (sighs) well this is like the rob zombie rebrands the slasher era where it and just like i cannot handle rob zombie movies (laughs) and i know that's a weird coming from someone who loves saw six very much but like There are horror movies, and I think Rob Zombie kind of canonized this concept for the era of the mid-aughts where he was an important voice. The point is not to make it suspenseful or or scary or whatever. The point is just to make the whole experience wildly unpleasant for the viewer the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) So something I find interesting about the way John eventually does die right because and by the way saw predates breaking bad i know the concept of a man with terminal cancer doing crazy stuff is like not super original but like it is worth mentioning that in terms of this rather specific approach to that saw did get there first the question in the first saw movies was when is jigsaw going to die and then how will we continue once he's gone I think the movies really handled both of those admirably. I think these were things that they could have shied away from and they could have just tried to keep him alive forever. And instead, we have this storyline that really dominates Saw 3, where basically Jigsaw and his protege Amanda are holed up in one of his many lairs. And she has, on his instruction, kidnapped a doctor who basically uses random lair tools to perform surgery on him to decrease the swelling in his brain. And at the same time, a guy named Jeff is progressing through a saw trap. And what happens is that over the course of the movie, we see Amanda responding with apparent jealousy to Jigsaw's relationship with the lady doctor, who we're pretty sure she just doesn't know him at all. I actually, I would like to talk about what Amanda's going through in this movie, because I said to you, I was like, do you see (laughs) Claudia from Magnolia, the movie we just talked about, in the portrayal of Amanda by Shawnee Smith in Saw 3? And I got an affirmative answer, but I would love to hear more about that now. I don't want to derail that because you just said a lot of things I want to touch on, at least one of the things that you said, which is I had not thought at all about the parallels between this and Breaking Bad and that John and Amanda are Walt and Jesse. Like, I did not put that together at all. Yeah. Because Amanda (laughs) is just this husk of a person who he's able to leverage into a protege through abuse and manipulation, ultimately, which he's able to then convince her that it's something she's been looking for. You know, in um, no doubt she's been looking for love in order, but there are other ways to get it for sure, I think. 
<laughs> so the binary to Claudia, I see it for sure in her energy in a really big way. Amanda, a lot of the time is operating at 11, mm-hmm. at an 11, like a cornered animal, which is how I felt Claudia was a good deal of the time that we spent time with her mm-hmm. for a lot of the same reasons. It seems like we don't know what like Amanda's family history is, but mm-hmm. we absolutely know that like things aren't great for her. She's kind of spiraling at all times and she's just like looking for something that looks something close to stability and like a unit she can fit into. I definitely see it with like the portrayal. Why is that something you keep returning to? Yeah, well, I think it is the energy, really. And I think also just this feeling of like that you're holding yourself together like a dropped pie. Mm. (laughs) Amanda just wants someone to like walk into her room and tell her, that she has a good heart and then for the Amy Mann chords to start and instead she gets a serial killer. That's maybe the the biggest parallel I see that like she just got a different man (laughs) dropped into her lap by the author of the movie she's in. Something that I always ask about any kind of serial killer horror scenario like supernatural whatever is like how does it work? Where do you live? Where do you keep your stuff? How do you do laundry, right? And I love that Saw actually does, to some degree, get into the practical aspects of all of this. That's one of the reasons why when they bring in Hoffman, I kind of didn't have a hard time embracing it. Because, like, for one thing, you're like, this is the workhorse who's, like, building and maintaining all of these things. But we get to see, like, Amanda's little bed in the, like, jigsaw warehouse lair that's, like, full of torture devices and Billy puppets. It's like she has her little bed with her little stuffed animal. And then on the wall behind it, she has a picture of the birth of Venus. And I just love that because it's like such a little thing. They didn't have to do it. I'm sure that a ton of people have seen that movie several times and, and, and not noticed it. It's very possible to not. I'm like, oh, like that's Amanda. Like she wants to be reborn. Like she wants to have a relationship where as she is being promised by this father figure in her life she will give every molecule of herself to him and his philosophy and and help create this legacy and she will be cured and if saving herself from the first trap didn't work then being thrown in a needle pit by that guy that'll do it and if that doesn't work then definitely kidnapping this doctor will be the thing and I just feel like we're watching someone who has been promised something that like there's no way for her to get really I think what she wants is to be accepted by someone, which is why people join cults. This is someone who she clearly loves. And now because he's sort of given up on even attempting to love anyone or to be connected with anyone aside from through this, you know, either teaching them to be a killer or teaching them via a killing machine, she's not going to get that from him. And now it's maybe obvious in a way it wasn't before because he's actively dying. And so I feel as if Jigsaw, in choosing Amanda as his protege and then in having her be so important to this final plan and then really, I think, kind of pushing her (laughs) to be jealous. I think that's how he ensures his own death. All Amanda needs is someone to love her. That's all she needs. What she is given is this person who says that actually what she needs is a code that serves my purposes, right? Like the thing that you really need Mm -hmm. is to go through all of this stuff, which at the end of the day serves my purposes and my interest. And it turns out that you 
loving me as a father. Like, I don't know that it's a romantic lover that we're supposed to think that it's a romantic mm-hmm. love. But like in some kind of way, yeah, that she loves him as a person. He then holds that against her. Yeah. That emotionality is the weakness that will get in between her and her exacting ability to implement this code. And the thing that I recognized in a gigantic way that you, that you just brought up, I don't know if it's that he just evades responsibility and this is how he evades responsibility, but like I recognize in my dad's relationship with all my older siblings, he only had capacity to maintain one positive relationship at a time with them. And the rest of the time was kind of like inadvertently or maybe somewhat intentionally and like what in retrospect is a little bit of an unsettling way was to pit them all against each other. Mm. And we see that so much in Jigsaw where it's like he's broken for a lot of different reasons. Like this is a broken ass man and he Mm -hmm. can't take the love and feel comfortable in the love. And so when he finally has someone who is there to love him, his response is to kind of destroy her and then (laughs) create strife with the other people that are carrying out his vision. Yeah, I mean, I know I have issues with intimacy, but like I've never arranged for anyone to be thrown into a needle pit for having the gall of (laughs) loving me yet. (laughs) Yeah, and I love how he's like, Amanda's emotions are her downfall. And it's like, are they? Are they? Isn't your whole problem that you had this beautiful, hot wife who was having a baby with you, even though you're a, you know, really sad old machinist? And then she lost the baby And you had cancer and like, that's really terrible. But like, they just never get into the specifics of how this marriage dissolved. I think because neither of these people really know the intimacy was lost and whatever kind of thread he was dangling by was severed. So we're saying Amanda's the problem because she's capable of having feelings? Like, I think feelings are good. (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, this is a person... Again, this is a person whose worldview pivots to isolate him from any responsibility. Right. In this case, Amanda is the problem. But like really, at the end of the day, the problem is he was already disposed to shutting everything out around him clearly. But like at some point, he embraced that as if it were a positive thing in spite of the fact the lesson he's trying to convince people of all the time is that they don't appreciate what they have in front of them. But like a way you could appreciate it is like hug the people who love you. Go to therapy a little bit. You know, I'm not an expert, but what you don't have to do is devote your life to torture scenarios and expect other people do it exactly the same way that you do. (laughs) maybe like even if if you have found no way through your life except to torture a bunch of people like don't expect other people to torture people to live to the fullest and if they are torturing people accept that they might have their own way of doing it but I also want to mention something the movie does that I love like never does the movie come out and say like Jigsaw seems motivated by personal bitterness, but like we got a lot of evidence that it's very easy to use to show that. And my favorite piece is Jigsaw's first victim is the guy who is partly responsible for his wife having a miscarriage mm. and he like puts him in this knife on face test and the guy actually makes it like he passes the test. And then he's like, I'm going to fucking kill you, Jigsaw. And then Jigsaw is like, boop, 
I'm going to step aside and let you fall into this razor wire. Okay. From the very beginning, you have been motivated by personal need for retribution. So, okay. <laughs> yeah. And at some point it becomes liberating people from that need. I have been observing you, and I know that you've been undone by the fact that everyone around your child's death has been haunting you in some way, and I'm going to liberate you from all of those things. <laughs> it's like, dude, just fucking, just talk to someone. Just talk to someone. <laughs> just let Amanda in. Like, imagine being John's social worker. You're like, so John, like, have you thought about, you know, maybe... What about therapy? And he's like, I think it would be easier for me to buy a warehouse, turn five rooms of it into elaborate killing machines, and then kidnap five different people who are all implicated in a crime that only I know about somehow. And then not kill them, but let them make choices because killing is distasteful. And then you're just like, okay, so. <laughs> and then through the process of those choices, you, you will discover that you have not fully been living your life. <laughs> <laughs> Another reason that I wanted to talk about this and release this episode this month is because we are coming to the end of, well, maybe not the end, but we are coming to at least a season break of a massive soap opera that none of us have been able to stop watching for the past four years and that definitely involves torture, but is mostly about people with no sense of morals fucking each other over. <laughs> and uh, I just w hope that on Inauguration Day, Carrie always also shows up and whips a hacksaw straight at the camera. <laughs> I love that we are given the story about a dysfunctional found family of serial killers that is really about paternal love and power and taking control of the family business and proving that you can fill your dad's shoes. And I like that this is a story about those themes where the answer is don't try it, not even once, just do your own thing because trying to emulate a patriarch will get everyone killed, and we do mean everyone. Took about me, then he washed it down with the body. 
Let's frame this. I watched five of the seven today. (laughs) Some people in my house are are worried about me. That's really hardcore. I said to Sarah, I was like, I never ever in any circumstance in our friendship and in the show, I never doubt your instincts. But I didn't realize until watching these movies how dad themed they are Mm -hmm. and i know that sometimes we have to squint a little bit to look at dad themes in the movies we talk about but sarah and i talk a lot about our old dads we talked quite a bit today about how john jigsaw has a lot of tendencies of an old dad and there are many dads in this series a lot of the drama is about challenging dads in one way or another so my overarching question to get us started is is how do dads play into the Saw universe? The Sawniverse, excuse me. <laughs> the whole kind of instigating incident for John Kramer becoming Jigsaw is his wife loses her pregnancy, suffers a miscarriage because of an attack. Uh, and that kind of drives him off of the deep end. So like in a literal sense, the whole series kind of is set off by someone who wanted to be a father and who lost the opportunity. Yeah, I mean, I the character really started to work for me when that became his motivation for whatever reason, because in the first movie, we learn Jigsaw is a serial killer, but he's not a serial killer because he doesn't kill people. He lets them make choices, and he does that because he wants to teach them to appreciate life because he has terminal cancer, and you're like, okay, great. And then in the second movie... He's like, not only do I have terminal cancer, but I got into a car accident and I got impaled and I pulled a piece of metal out of my torso and it made me want to test the fabric of human life for the rest of my days on Earth, which is a very fancy pants way of saying that he decided to spend his remaining and extremely finite time torturing people. The third movie, we get these flashes of him remembering this beautiful lady Who is she? She's not Amanda. And then in the fourth movie, we learn about his beautiful target wine mom wife and his son Gideon, who he lost, and how he's sad because his baby died. 
and you're like, yep, these are the actions of a sad man. We finally admitted the truth. Thank you. (laughs) (laughs) In various contexts that we've talked about in past episodes, most recently when we broke down the reasons we thought that being dad resonated with people, this is a man who makes a big show Mm -hmm. out of making learning really, really hard (laughs) because he had to learn difficult lessons in a hard way and you're going to learn difficult lessons in a hard way. Right, and he's like getting impaled really worked for me and so I bet it's going to work for other people and it's like maybe you have a learning style that's compatible with getting impaled and not everyone does. (laughs) Since by the end of the seven films Jigsaw has like a collection of acolytes basically Mm. each of whom presumably has to go through their own test in order to prove their worthiness to work with jigsaw he's kind of a a father figure in the way that batman is right sort of collecting other similar broken people Mm -hmm. and and maybe even trying to turn that brokenness into something constructive but whereas for batman that is fighting crime for jigsaw that is elaborate you know torture games yeah Mm. or like professor xavier jigsaw does that like classic like emotional equivocation thing where in the third movie We know now that he's got a wife somewhere, which honestly is quite shocking. And then they just go with it. And you're like, yeah, that makes sense. He would have like a a wife stashed away somewhere. But where he's like, I'm married. But Amanda is like the closest I've come to feeling connection in my life. So yay. And it's like, is that because she also just wants to lash out and kill people all the time? And that's who you are and at the end of the day you're like yeah I'm kind of a kind of snap and kill people a lot it's just kind of a thing I do it's not good oh well who is Amanda in in the context of the series okay I'm gonna try and take this one in a linear fashion (laughs) so let's just talk about the the first Saw movie Saw comes out in 2004. It was very successful. It was made for like $750,000 or something like that. It was one of those come from behind smash hits. And basically it's the story of two men, Lee Wanell, who is the screenwriter, and Carrie Elways, formerly of The Princess Bride, who wake up in this weird gross bathroom with their ankles shackled and they have a couple of hours to complete a game given to them by a scary voice on a tape recorder called Jigsaw. And one of the things the movie does to liven up the fact that it is two guys in a room is jump around outside of linear time, which really sets up how the whole series is going to do that. And one of the people we meet is Amanda, who is a past victim of Jigsaw, who survived the iconic Jigsaw weapon, which is called the reverse bear trap. Which I don't, I'm not convinced would kill you, but it would be really horrible. (laughs) And then what happens to Amanda Jamel? Yeah, so Amanda is the survivor we meet in uh, the first Saw and Saw 2. I believe she returns and is revealed to be someone working with Jigsaw because the Jigsaw method worked for her. Mm -hmm. She went through the program, did the steps and came out. (laughs) A new person. She bought the leggings. She sold the leggings. <laughs> right, right, right. So the uh, the jigsaw method worked for her. And so now she is working with him to spread the jigsaw method to other people. Kind of like an MLM, I guess. Yes. And in Saw 2, 
she becomes convinced. I think I think that Satu is. No, I'm thinking. So here's my problem with these, not with the movies, but having watched all of them, they all kind of bleed together in my head. So I'm not entirely sure when certain plot points happen. Mm. So Saw 2, she's helping organize the game. Yeah. Donnie Wahlberg's son is in the house. Yeah, it's Saw 3 when she is trying to have an operation done to relieve John's pain. Mm. And in that, you discover that she actually has not, the Saw method, if it worked, was only temporary. She is uncertain of her, whether she's actually been cured of her anxiety or mental illness or whatnot. And the Saw method, more or less, <laughs> is obviously uh, helping enact these games so that people can go through and figure out if they truly value life by having to do really heinous shit in order to, to stay alive, but also being held and expected to have internalized all of John's convoluted codes without always knowing whether or not you're on the right side of it and pretty consistently disappointing John. Like John's often really upset (laughs) that someone has transgressed the code and Amanda somewhat consistently transgresses the code by the end of uh, Saw 3 and is replaced, right? She's Or his attention starts to be elsewhere. Jamel, what stood out to you how does this movie stand out from other horror franchises that you watch? You said you watched, was it Final Destination before? What stands out about this and what do you think it makes this special for you? Or if it was special at all? Well, like Sarah said, I mean, it is unique in that there isn't any attempt to reboot the initial conceit of the first film. The sequels don't really return. I mean, they return to the same places and they obviously are all relying on kind of the conceit of the game. But there's no attempt to sort of recreate the first movie exactly, which is what you see in a lot of just any long running franchise. Right at some point, there's an attempt just to reboot the entire thing and kind of start fresh with the same concept. Mm-hmm. And I, I have no sense of whether or not the writers uh, of the franchise kind of plotted things out. I don't think that they did. But it seems that there is a a choice made to make this, to give soap operas one way, comic book continuity is another way, just mm-hmm. sort of beginning to layer on narratives upon narratives upon narratives. If you find yourself in a place where characters need to act a certain way for the plot to move forward, you make them act that way and you kind of just retroactively change or add something into the past to explain that motivation, which is very much how comic books are treated, right? That... Until actually pretty recently, until the last 20 years, there wasn't a whole lot of rebooting comic books. Stuff just sort of started Hmm. or kind of kept going. So Fantastic Four, number one in 1963, goes 100 issues. And then the creative team, Jack Kirby and Stanley leave and the creative team changes. Hmm. Fast forward 12 or 13 years, John Byrne has main to penciling and writing duties on the book. And it's fantastic for number 300 something, right? There hasn't been any reboot or anything. It's just all that stuff happened. And if we need something to happen now, we'll either just say, well, you know, back when they first fought Galactus, you didn't see it at the time, but actually X, Y, and Z happened. That's just off screen. And so that explains this now. The Saw movies to me are very much structured the same way. Oh, you know, this is what Hoffman's motivation was. And it goes, or to use Amanda's example, this is why Amanda was so upset and saw three. And you didn't see it at the time, but actually Hoffman was there the entire time and he had given her a note that made her upset. 
And it's very clearly, I mean, again, I have no, don't, don't know anything about the writer's process, but to me, it very much seems like the writers writing themselves to a place where it made the most sense for John Hoffman to have written a note to Amanda, and therefore they just kind of did it and not, didn't worry too much about continuity or consistency of character, which I kind of, I honestly kind of admire. One of my complaints about a lot of franchise filmmaking these days, in part because of how indebted it is to nerds, mm-hmm. is that there's this desire for consistency, that everything has to have an explanation, everything has to make perfect sense, everything has to fit together like a puzzle box. And I don't necessarily think it does. <laughs> <laughs> I think that can get in the way of entertaining filmmaking. Well, and I think it's better to be like overly splashy and dramatic than to be overly careful. There's something that happens in prestige TV that really annoys me where like a show will like hint that there's some kind of big overarching story that the main characters are a part of and you you keep getting it hinted at, you know, in these oblique ways and it's like someday we'll figure out who Sydney Bristow's mom is or whoever, not that Alias is prestige TV, but <laughs> and just like this idea that like you're watching because of this large plot that's like too special to dive into but when we get to it it'll be really cool and then it just sort of fizzles out weirdly you know it's like Mulder's sister Mm. like by the time it actually addresses it it's like this carrot that you've been chasing to justify the existence of the show and then it's like kind of shriveled and contradictory wouldn't you rather just like make a ton of intense decisions Mm. I'm interested in defending these movies because what happens is I'm like I like the Saw movies, I think they're great. And then people are like, isn't it just torture porn? And I'm like, it is torture porn, but it's also so much more. (laughs) (laughs) Well, and Alex, you have like just experienced this all at once. How is this sitting? How would both of you like go about recommending this to somebody or even describing it? What what you both have said has been very helpful to me in deciphering what just happened, uh, largely because like Sarah's talked a lot about the soap opera elements and we talked a bit about that today. And then, Jamel, you're talking about the comic book elements. And I've been telling people on Twitter that like this functions a lot like the Marvel Cinematic Universe. I, I, I'm not well versed in like actual comic books, but like I am well versed with those 400 movies that came out. Probably good for your brain. Yeah. <laughs> and I just read Neil Gaiman's retelling of, of some of the Norse mythology in which Odin, Loki, and Thor getting up to shenanigans. And the through line with all of those three things that I just talked about is there are a couple of rules and then everything flows out of those rules. So it's like, we know a couple of things about the characters. We know a couple of things about character motivations and then everything else just comes out of that. And that's what I liked about what Sarah had said about this movie and what what you'd echoed, Jamel, about this, this franchise is that it never tries to reinvent Anytime it says, well, actually, this person was there the whole time, it makes sense in these various contexts about the fact that we know that John is really good at convincing people to do things. We know that his, you know, cult outlook works for people in one way or another. And so it was fun watching that all take place. And actually, the thing I was surprised about is it is torture porn because that's what they called it when it came out. I was surprised at how not unsettling a lot of the gore was like the Fargo TV series is gory in a way that upsets me. Like people get shot and you're like, Oh, that's upsetting. Cause that's how I imagine that would be. There was only one scene 
And this whole series that really undid me, which was someone having a fish hook pulled out of their stomach through a, a string, that was rough. <laughs> but I was surprised at how, you know, it felt a lot more like the late 90s, early aughts Mortal Kombat games gore than anything else. So I would not suggest people watch seven of these movies in two days. But if you're interested in following the mythology in one way or another, you know, space them out over a couple of weeks. There is one time when I would recommend watching them all in two days which is election night, which is what I did. (laughs) And it really helped. It's interesting to think about how I would recommend them because even if I were to try to make the case that the gore wasn't really too bad, like for me, the visual gore wasn't ever a problem. It was always the sound design, the sound of something cutting into flesh, something being pulled out. It's a very, very moist film. So that always that bothered me the most. But if I were recommending them, I would recommend them specifically as this sort of strange cinematic experiment, not in a shared universe, but in just sort of the most Byzantine storytelling you can get away with in this medium. And I also think one failing of the series is it doesn't really take this as far as it could. But at points, it feels like the, the series is about to present John Kramer's utilitarian philosophy of torture and punishment in something of a positive light like it kind of inches towards this kind of like hey maybe John Kramer has a point these movies becoming a study of Jigsaw specifically and a a look at what motivates him that to me is sort of the compelling through line especially since so many of the other people you meet are all disposable right sort of most of the cast Mm. of each movie is killed by the end of it so really you have at the end of each movie maybe one or two or three characters that persist or continue into the next film is the actor's name is Tobin Bell is that is that correct yeah he is so extraordinarily charismatic in the weirdest weirdest way he's amazing (laughs) like I don't know how you end up casting because I assume when they cast him they were like you're mainly the main criterion is going to be willingness to lie on the floor (laughs) you'll be played by a dummy for 90 percent yeah and I don't know how or why but like Tobin Bell's performance as a jigsaw a makes sense to me and b carries this whole franchise it's a great performance Yeah. And and it's like, how great can it be? But it's like pretty great is the answer. (laughs) (laughs) Can we talk about at least in the first movie and then in the second and a little bit left over in the third Mm. Jigsaw's primary objective is to teach some dad who's kind of a dick to not be a dick. Yeah. And of course, the movie like continues to lose interest more and more in the person inside the trap. Like by the time we get to the fifth movie, I think it's like we're fairly deep in with characters and picking up drama between them. And then it's like and then some people are in a trap as well, because that's what these movies are about. And you're like, oh, yeah, that's true, too, I guess. In five and six, (laughs) the people who are targets are like insurance executives and people who are corrupt on some level. So you're like, "Ah, I don't care. Yeah. So when when his focus is on dads, what's going on? We know a bit about his biography, but like, why is that significant in any way to the story? I mean, I I will say now that you say that, now you frame it that way, the structure, if you look at the first saw from the perspective of Carrie. Sorry, I can never say his last name correctly. Carrie Elways, I think. Carrie Elways' character. It is sort of like a perverse bad dad, soccer dad kind of movie. Sort of like a dad 
who's too concerned with his career or profession and then has some sort of mystical experience. Like, what's that movie with um, Jack Frost? Michael Keaton. Oh, sure. <laughs> is a bad dad, musician dad who dies in the car accident and is reincarnated as a mystical snowman. It's like basically that structure from the perspective of Carrie Elway's <laughs> character. But it seems, looking at the full scope of the series, that Kramer's or Jigsaw's uh, main goal with these bad dads is to get them to appreciate something that he cannot have, which is a relationship with a, an offspring, a son or a daughter, to really kind of treasure that and treasure what that means for one's life. Which, again, is like the, the point mm-hmm. of these bad dad movies, whether it's Jack Frost or Liar Liar or Jingle All the Way, which I watched over Christmas. I love thinking of Saw as a movie in the same category as Liar Liar, because it so <laughs> is. Or like Hook, or just, yeah, this whole swath of movies where it's like a dad that needs to be taught a lesson. Right. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. And what is the lesson with Donnie Wahlberg? Like, I, Sarah, you said this kind of injustice that it's like, the lesson seems to be that like Donnie Wahlberg kind of yelled at his kid one time. <laughs> we know his kid, I think, is maybe into drugs a bit, is, is like a petty criminal, perhaps, but hasn't gone to jail. Yeah, he's gotten arrested a couple times. I think they said he stole something. So, yeah, he's doing teen crime. Right. But Donnie's uh, primary issue is that he's a bad cop. Yeah. And Jigsaw, for being a, a strange masochistic potentially libertarian who also hates insurance companies also hates cops which is really interesting (laughs) jigsaw is ahead of his time like saw 2 came out in 2005 and it just is him targeting a cop who he hates because he's a dirty cop and you're like all right Eventually, people have to be wary of the police force who is trying to stay out of the way of the FBI, who's the only agency that's able to focus on what's actually going on. There are some funny uh, parallels to this moment. (laughs) I would also love to talk about where we feel that this series might be set. I don't think it's ever set. I think maybe we see like a New Jersey plate at one point, but like we might not. And it's so blink and you miss it that that hardly counts. They made maybe the first movie, definitely the second through the seventh ones in Toronto, which becomes more obvious as we progress because they become like more speaking Canadians. (laughs) (laughs) The series also feels so reflective of like America in this time to me, because like I do believe that there could be a serial killer just buying up warehouses in certain areas of this country and then just committing murders and then just sealing them up and being like, I'm done with this one. And then like no one noticed. Like, I feel like there are places where that could happen. Mm. It's strange watching these movies in an age where cities, even in pandemic world, cities are still places where people want to live, where real estate's very valuable, where it's hard, difficult to find housing and wherever the Saw series takes place. I've just assumed it's Boston because Donnie Wahlberg is in it. And so the, I don't think the Wahlbergs are like legally allowed to leave Southie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that works. Well, I think like one of them can leave at a time, but there can't be multiple Wahlbergs absent at once. Right, right, right. If, if, if two leave, 
then like one will die at a certain point, yeah. untethered from their ancestral home. Not only do they very much seem to have a picture of the city that is not yet revitalized and prosperous and however you want to think of that, but they're they're a little incongruent in that there are these post-9-11 movies that are like highly concerned with crime, but not necessarily crime as in street crime. Like I, I watched King of New York pretty recently, which is an Abe Ferreira movie starring Christopher Walken. Mm-hmm. And that's a film where crime is ever present. Street crime is happening all the time. And like the fear of crime is of this sort of petty victimization. But Jigsaw, although he is a criminal, is effectively kind of like a terrorist, right? He's right. not yeah. someone who's going to mug you. Like his threat is more psychological for the public at large than it is body count and that to me is like an interesting framing for a serial killer character as a kind of you know osama bin laden of of crime i would love for us to try something where we attempt to just describe the plot of the soniverse Movie by movie, because I think I think it's going to be difficult and therefore funny. <laughs> we can do it as a round if you want. Okay, yeah, that, that makes sense, yeah. Alex, do you want to start? Because you're the newest inductee into Saw Phantom. So in Saw 1, we have a couple of guys wake up and they realize that they are chained up in a room and they have been instructed through sort of a series of reveals through micro cassette tapes which of course that's what John Kramer is using yes this movie is refreshing in that there's virtually no digital exchange that happens in any of this series so these guys are playing a game they're in a room with a guy who has previously killed himself and throughout the course of the game we learn about this man named Jigsaw who has some issues and these guys that I can't even describe how it ends up for them. Like it's, it's a lot of, <laughs> it's a lot of, it's a lot of flashbacks at the end of the day, a man who's a surgeon who might be slightly neglectful to his daughter because he needs to finish writing a paragraph on his laptop before he can read her a story has to saw off his foot to get away. And the other man ends up getting killed by Jigsaw. Yeah, just left in the the weird bathroom, as far as we know. And then in Saw 2, we're like, hey, we're back and we have more money, so let's put more people in this one and then have an exterior shot in the very beginning, but never again after that, because it's too much money. (laughs) And Saw 2 is about Detective Donnie Wahlberg, who yells at his son and who then is with the team of police officers in anonymous corrupt city, including Detective Carey, who's a lady cop who we met in the first Saw movie, which actually has a lot of police procedural stuff, which everyone, including me, always forgets about, and also has Danny Glover in it, which I think is where a lot of their budget went. Yes. (laughs) (laughs) Don't sleep on the Danny Glover parts of that movie. Like, there's an experience for more kinds of filmgoers than you might think. And so in Saw 2, Detective Donnie Wahlberg and his team find Jigsaw, a.k.a. John Kramer, sitting calmly and eating a bowl of soup inside of one of the factory buildings. And he's like, this is the first time the audience has really seen me, and I'm very creaky and I appear very weak and yet I have this weird kind of gravity and 
I don't know. It's just it's working somehow. (laughs) (laughs) And so basically, as this is happening, we learn that there is a house where there are five people, including Donnie Wahlberg's teenage son that he yelled at, who have all been given the slow-acting nerve agent that is going to kill them over the course of two hours unless they pass these scary and often painful tests to get the antidote. And one of the people being tested is Amanda. And it's like, huh, didn't she already have her test? But she has to have another one because it turns out she's joining Team Jigsaw. And the reveal at the end is that Donnie Wahlberg who uses this time going head-to-head with Jigsaw and brutalizing him a little bit, could have actually just sat tight and chatted with Jigsaw because his son was already safe the entire time and all of the people dying inside of the house, that part of the movie happened several hours before this other part of the movie. So psych, (laughs) which is something that the series will continue to do. And so it ends with... Donnie Wahlberg ending up trapped in the same scary bathroom where our character in the first movie, Adam, died, and us learning that Amanda is the new Jigsaw helper, which gives us lots of potential for exciting further movies, like Saw 3. So in Saw 3, Jigsaw is near death, or John is near death, And Amanda is caring for him. And she kidnaps a doctor, brain surgeon, who is attached to, I think, that reverse bear trap and is tasked with keeping him alive lest the trap goes off and kills her. Meanwhile, within a game, I suppose arranged by Amanda, is Jeff, I think is his name, who is consumed with vengeance towards the man, the drunk driver who killed his son and is put through a game to, to basically test his mercy and see if he's willing to let go of this vengeance and live again. Part as well of the, the plot of this is that Amanda, although she may have been cured by the Jigsaw method, the Jigsaw maintains, John maintains, that he has no bloodlust. He hates killing. He does not like to see people die. He's not a serial killer, and Amanda is just his disciple, and why would she read romantic stuff into it? It's weird. (laughs) (laughs) But Amanda seems to actually enjoy killing and sets up her traps such that the victims can't actually get out of them, that even if they do have the will to live, they still end up dying. And so part of all of this as well is John is testing Amanda to see if she can give up her desire for blood and I'm probably missing some other steps here but in the end she is unwilling to let the doctor live and this leads Jeff killing her and then uh, everyone dying mm-hmm. and then just everybody dies just like in Shakespeare <laughs> so I wanted to you know in Saw 4 I have the entire time you two have been talking have been looking at the plot on Wikipedia uh-huh. and I watched this movie today and and I can barely recall having looked at the plot and watched the movie today all the intricacies <laughs> of this movie. This one's concurrent with Saw 3, right? This is when the timeline gets gets really wild. Yes. Yeah, that's the big twist. 
Saw loves to be like, I never said that any of these scenes were happening in the same timeline. And you're like, I guess you didn't now that you put it that way. The movie is like, that's that's your assumption, buddy. That's your problem that you think that linear time applies here. These are the limits of your reality. It's a little difficult because Jeff... I think got a TV show at this time and he lost a bunch of weight or stopped drinking. And so he looks like a decidedly different human being. Like Jeff is in this movie and it looks like he did P90X looking back at the time. (laughs) You know what I think is funny about Jeff is that he has on this really cozy shawl collar sweater and yet Jigsaw has, or Amanda or whoever, someone from Jigsaw Incorporated, has taken his shoes off because I think everyone who goes through the traps has their shoes off or at the beginning they do. But he got to keep his sweater, which is interesting. And Jeff also marks, I think, the part where the victims of the trap just start to become really stupid, which is like the movies allowing us to not have empathy with them. Because there's a part where he has to like reach through these frozen bars to get a key and he just lays his cheek right across it. Oh, yes, yes, yes You know, yes, yes, and yes. gets this big wound, which I think is partly so in later installments when we flash back, we can remember who he is because we're yeah. like, there's Jeff, <laughs> Jeff with his wound. But it's like, Jeff, you have a sweater. Just, like, put your sweater between your face and the thing. I can't believe I have to tell you this. Like, you know, so, like, there's a very sudden descent in, like, the carability of the the trap people yeah so i mean so basically what we're seeing in this movie is we see an intersection of there's a police force and there the fbi is ultimately looking at this one cop that has in the previous movies been a through line through uh all of jigsaw shenanigans mm-hmm. detective rig and yeah and, and everyone around detective rig gets killed so they're looking into to why this might be happening and they're like you're the only surviving character who we even saw in the second movie like why are you alive it's weird <laughs> right <laughs> and we and we follow along and detective rig makes a lot of progress and essentially we learn a lot of things looking back on john in particular we meet jill saw who is uh, <laughs> um, uh, not not technically referred to that she just happens to be she just happens to be John's ex-wife. Her name is really Jill Tuck. We learn a little bit about the background of John and sort of why he's the way that he is. We learn about the fact that she has lost her baby. And then kind of at the end, this whole time, Donnie Wahlberg has been standing on a block of ice that is <laughs> melting, that if everything goes wrong... Wearing a little iron boot. <laughs> yeah. If everything goes wrong, his head's going to explode or he's going to hang or something. He's going to have his head squished like a grate between two giant weights that are going to fall from the ceiling. And like, I just got to say, I know we learned that John has help. He has at least like... Uh, Well, probably like five helper people full time in the end that we learn about. But like I have Ikea furniture that I have not put together for the past several months. (laughs) Like I do not understand how and like say what you will about these saw people, but they get things done. Totally. So, yeah, he's been standing on some ice for the entire movie. This is one of my main big dad takeaways is that I am not a father myself, but a place where I feel really dadly as I've recently started on the weekends doing tasks where I put stuff together or I make things and they're totally meaningless, but it's like helpful for clearing out my head and I do it for hours at a time. And that's what John does. John just puts shit 
it together <laughs> and, and processes his all of his feelings. So anyway, at the end of this movie, uh, Donnie Wahlberg's head explodes. A bunch of other people die. <laughs> Jeff doesn't quite make it. And then we learn that this officer or detective Hoffman is a new disciple. Yeah, or that he's been discipling all along. And he's like, surprise, it's me. It's Costas Mandylor. You saw me for a second at the start of the third movie, and I'm here, and I've been helping Jigsaw the whole time. And when Amanda had kidnapped Dr. Lynn Denlin, and when she was doing brain surgery, I was also there. I guess wasn't in any of the scenes, but I was there. And what's funny is that when we first got to this twist in the movies, I was like, okay great let's do this and i think it's like weird plots are like cons like if you the mark want to be seduced then you will be and i was like yes costas mandy lore is doing it now great and so the fifth movie is about detective hoffman <laughs> playing cat and mouse with agent peter strom of the fbi played by luke from gilmore girls that's who that guy is i was like that guy looks so familiar to me and i can't figure it out but yeah and Detective Hoffman, the main role I and I assume a lot of other viewers know him for, is that he played Friar Fuck in an episode of Sex and the City. <laughs> now he gets to carry a whole franchise. And so in the fifth movie, we basically are watching this group of corrupt people go through a trap. Who cares? The movie has basically lost interest in those people by this point. Although, with regards to that trap, one thing I think is great about Saw 5 is that there are five saws in it. <laughs> like this is a movie that delivers on its premise in a very literal way. Um, so these people are getting through the trap room and we are watching as basically throughout the course of the movie, Agent Strom puts together the fact that Hoffman has been working with Jigsaw this whole time. We learn more about how actually he was helping build all these other traps and how he started off as a jigsaw copycat killer before the first movie even happened so he built this amazing horrible pendulum with which to kill his sisters his dead sister's abusive husband who killed her and so jigsaw who was a nazi by the way that no one comments on <laughs> well we're commenting on it now <laughs> he has nazi tattoos and no one mentions it. <laughs> I thought that was going to become something. I was like, oh, he's going to like torture a Nazi. That's that's kind of satisfying. But no. He's like, I don't care that you're a Nazi. This is personal. <laughs> yeah. And like not to jump ahead, but there is also that amazing part in the seventh movie where some other random Nazis are in a trap and the jigsaw voice says, you and your friends are all racists. Yeah. And then they get killed by the trap. And you're like, did that? Okay. Like, I appreciate that you're killing random racists now, but like, do you really have this kind of time? <laughs> Jigsaw picked up a copy of uh, White Fragility and was like, this is really making me think. <laughs> the Saw franchise has a lot more to say about white supremacists in America before like 2018 than most mainstream publications had to say. <laughs> Not to skip ahead too much to the Saw 7, but it's worth noting that in that trap, the I guess the guy in the car, that's Chester Bennington, late Chester Bennington of Lincoln Park. Oh, that's who that, oh, wow, that's who that is. That's wild. 
Oh, R.I.P. Chester. R.I.P. Chester. And he's great in it. He's great in that scene. He gives it 100%, and I love it. Yeah, and so also this is a departure again because at the start of the fifth movie, you know, we've gotten into this rhythm where we tend to open with a person in a trap before we even get the main titles, like a James Bond movie where we're like, here's a mini adventure to go on top of the main adventure. (laughs) So we see this guy with Nazi tattoos and we are just exonerated from feeling bad about watching him be sliced in half, which is what happens. The movie is like, if you would like to enjoy watching someone be sliced in half, you can do that. It's fine. And so basically at the end of the fifth movie, after an FBI agent has chased around Hoffman, the new jigsaw, Hoffman tricks him into getting crushed in a trap room and is like, I'm the new Jigsaw. The end. And you're like, yay, long live Jigsaw. (laughs) I'm the Jigsaw now. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, Saw 6. This is the best one, I think. And I, I think, Sarah, you had said on Twitter that this was your favorite one. And I think this is the best of the movies, like, easily. Yeah, this is my favorite one. Saw 6. This is the one where Hoffman and the FBI agent are basically trying to uh, stop each other. Oh, no, I think that's the fifth one. That's right, yes. Yeah, because then Strom gets crushed at the end of the fifth one, and the sixth one is the insurance one. But, yeah, the fifth one I also think is is very good on a soapy level. You're right, you're right, because the fifth one ends with the FBI agent getting Hoffman into that trap and then yeah, then it begins with he's been crushed. So the sixth one, yeah, that's the health it's the health insurance one. Timely since I think it came out around the time that the Affordable Care Act was being debated in Congress. Mm-hmm. The game is the head of a health insurance agency is basically being tested to see if he can actually determine who is supposed to live or die. This one does have a great twist, and I'll just kind of skip to it, which is that each trap I think has a member of his team or members of his team, and he actually gets through them. Unlike many of the game participants throughout the series, he is pretty resourceful and pretty smart and willing to do what it takes. So he gets through the game and gets to this holding cell area where uh, you, the viewer, are led to believe he'll see his family and you are led to believe that his family is this woman and her son who are also you know, trapped in this warehouse but not a participant in the game. But it turns out that his family is a sister who is there and the woman and the son are the uh, wife and child of a guy for whom the insurance agency owner denied coverage. And so that guy's dead. And the test is actually whether they will let the insurance agency dude live. And the wife cannot do it, but the son is happy to execute him and does so. So that's the game. That is happening as... Hoffman is trying to cover up the tracks of him being Jigsaw's helper, being the new Jigsaw. So he is kind of methodically killing everyone who would know, including the other FBI agents who have actually figured out who he is and who almost get him before he uh, kills them all. I think at like an FBI office, which is a pretty gutsy thing to do. Yeah, and he kills like five people in a row. Like he just goes on a rampage with whatever is at hand, practically. Jill Tuck, during all of this, has gotten John Kramer's, her ex-husband's final, you know, from his will, her, the, the what, what he has bequeathed to her. Uh, and they include a trap 
to use on Hoffman. And so she does. She gets him and leaves thinking that he is going to die. But Hoffman, who does have a will to live, ends up tearing off his cheek to get the trap off of his head. And then the movie ends with him, not just Jake Saw spiritually, but now Jake Saw in the flesh as well. He has made the final transformation. I love a movie that ends with a guy just like ripping something off of his face, gashing open his cheek and just like closing it wide. I mean, it, he looks like Steve Buscemi in Fargo, actually. Yes, yes yeah. Like just. <laughs> and then it's just like executive producer Mark Berg. <laughs> <laughs> In Saw 7, which was Saw 3D at the time, Mm -hmm. the catch or whatever we were trying to get people in on the previous movie was it was a commentary on the Affordable Care Act. And this one was it was utilizing uh, 3D technology. That's where we jumped from one movie to the other. We find out that Dr. Lawrence Gordon, who is played by Carrie Elways uh, in the first movie, is still with us. It does this thing that happens in some movies where we see him cauterize his foot, cauterize him where he sawed off his uh, foot. Uh, the stumpy leg by putting it on a hot pipe and it always assumes that there isn't just like a bone sticking out (laughs) so that was the one thing that stood with me there we flash to the first time to one of Sarah's points that we see any of these games take place in public which is crazy because we've spent the past 10 years more or less 11 years commenting on how public our lives have become and it's kind of appropriate that the last Saw movie is the movie that has one of these things take place in public Hmm. that one is just kind of the flashy before credits thing we see a a woman get cut in half which is a different tone it's like this movie isn't going to be cutting nazis in half we're going to be cutting women in half it's a much different tone some nazis but also women so i honestly found that one to be kind of like this is going to sound insane to say it but like distasteful in a way that the others weren't yeah it's different what's interesting about these movies is there isn't a lasciviousness to the violence like freddy krueger is a sassy fresh mouth child molester right like that's one of his big things in this series there isn't like a special violence for women which is interesting but this setup of this trap in particular where it's like the woman who dies we've been told has played these two guys against each other in one way or another. And then they let her die in in this trap. It just felt tonally strange. It didn't feel like it fit into the whole thing. It was the basest moment in all of the Saw movies. (laughs) So anyway, Jill tries to get help by going to the police. He talks to a very dismissive guy cop. He's the worst actor in all of the Saw movies, as far as I can tell. Sorry if you're listening, friend who plays this cop. I just put two and two together since we're talking about Hoffman this whole time that this cop, Hoffman, is the one who kills this gang of white supremacists, which is probably the most unrealistic piece of the Saw franchise so far to teach them a lesson about racism. (laughs) Mm -hmm. This cop doesn't burn crosses. (laughs) At this point, I don't fully know what happens with the back and forth between Jill Saw, and let's get to that in a second. What I love the most about this movie is that one of the characters, like that guy, I forget the TV show, but there was a TV show where an actor who was in the show, Nick Kroll was in it, faked being in the Twin Towers when the World Trade Center went down. Oh, uh, Steve Raznazzi on The League. Yes, that is it. Thank you so much. That must have happened after this. But there's a character who essentially fakes being a 
jigsaw victim and uses that to become a self-help guru. <laughs> and he's played by Sean Patrick Flannery. Yeah. And it's so much fun. And Sean Patrick, poor Sean Patrick Flannery, then gets taken by Jigsaw and actually put through the gauntlet. And his poor uh, wife learns that she's been lied to about his background by being put into one of these traps, which is the worst way to realize that your husband is the worst. Yeah, even worse than Reddit. Even worse than Reddit. Even worse than an Am I the Asshole. And then, uh, and then I don't know, Jilsaw convinces people that it's Hoffman who's ultimately the killer, and things get really convoluted in a way that I'm sure is beneficial if you didn't just spend the whole day watching five of the movies back to back. Yeah. Can I explain like the final five minutes and my relation to them? Please do. Okay. (laughs) So Hoffman is an interesting character, I think, because he has like no interiority practically. We know that he's angry about his dead sister. We know that's why he became a serial killer, kind of. But we also know that he was a killer cop even before that. And he basically, though, for like the four movies of which he is the main character, is just this big kind of moist lunk who like walks around killing people like he just enjoys killing people he's not a complicated person he appears to be capable of learning how to carry out really complicated jigsaw traps that like I think he's building and maintaining at this point and he's willing to do all of this for this bossy old man who's dead you know he doesn't care he gets to kill people it's fine it's interesting because he's the character who is the excuse for everything happening in the movie and yet Jigsaw, who died at the end of the third movie and who has not come back to life. Like, we open the fourth movie with an autopsy, which to me is one of the most intense parts of the series. A, that they show sort of at-home brain surgery in the third movie, and then that they do this autopsy, which is partly just, you know, to, to counter the sort of Friday the 13th approach where they're like, yep, he's dead. He's dead as hell. He swallowed this tape, but he's still dead. <laughs> and then we still just get Tobin Bell in flashbacks for the rest of the movies and he remains the real (laughs) it's weird to say this but the heart of the story because he's the one who thinks that he has a reason for doing all the things that he's doing and who is clearly constructed this like baroque life philosophy system and what i what i love about this this series is that it allows you to read it and be like wow like jigsaw he's so deep and he teaches people to value life It's so interesting. Or you can look at it and be like, I think the movie is in on the fact that Jigsaw is dying of a frontal lobe tumor. Mm. (laughs) And he's not thinking that well. We don't know how his marriage with Jill ended, but it happened after she lost this baby. And it seems as if his grief kind of turned him in, well, his grief over that and then also over his cancer was something that he just couldn't see a way to process and couldn't allow her to be a part of and just sort of tested his ability to have continue having a relationship that didn't involve intimacy while only while training someone to be a murderer and you can also just read this character as someone who like thinks he has ideas but who like doesn't even realize he's the mediocre dad who he hates he's just torturing copies of himself don't you see jigsaw the movies leave the door open for an interpretation where like this is about 
this legacy of like a tragic patriarch who never had ideas. He just had unprocessed grief, but people thought he had ideas so that like even after he's dead, dozens of people are being killed in homage to his non-ideas. Like that's very deep, I think. Yeah, I can see that reading of the series being an almost tragic story of people who, for reasons of their own unprocessed grief and trauma, end up adopting the life philosophy or the pseudo-life philosophy of uh, a sad, grieving man. Right. And they're like, this must be the truth. And so, I mean, the question at the end of this saga is like, okay, so we've all had our fun, you know, watching all these terrifying deaths for many movies, but like, how is this all going to end? Like, are we going to end with everyone still standing? Like how, like, is there anyone left to root for? Is Hoffman our main guy at this point? Like what's, what's going to happen? And so the movie solves this by a first having Hoffman kill Gilsaw, RIP Gilsaw, by giving her the reverse bear trap, which in my head canon, we don't know that that killed her and she could still come back and, you know, in Saw 10, I'm just saying. <laughs> but in, it appears based on the story the movie is telling us so far uh, that she has died. And so then Hoffman goes and he's like, fuck it, I'm going to get the hell out of Dodge. I'm going to pour a bunch of kerosene over this huge warehouse in which I'm taking care of all of the Billy puppets and all of John's stuff. Like, I'm just going to torch this mother and get out of here. But then he is kidnapped by some people in pig masks, which is the jigsaw helper outfit, obviously. Who Mm. could they be? And then one of the people takes off his pig mask and it's Dr. Lawrence Gordon from the original Saw. And you're like, oh my God, he was helping Jigsaw the whole time for some reason. And then also the Jigsaw method works. (laughs) The Jigsaw method worked for him. And Amanda's like, I lost 30 pounds on the jigsaw method, but then I gained 50. I don't know. But she's dead now. Who cares what Amanda (laughs) says? And they're like, see, he was doing all the surgeries on the jigsaw victims. And he was one of the helpers. And why didn't he go back to save Adam? (laughs) And that will bother me for the rest of my life. Poor Adam. We end with... Dr. Gordon taking Hoffman back to the original bathroom from the original Saw, which is fantastic fan service, in my opinion, and shackling his ankle to the pipe or whatever the same way that he was. And you have to know that, like, the iconic thing that that Jigsaw says and then that other people say in the series when the game's over and you're fucked is they say, game over. It's not very creative, (laughs) but it works. So Hoffman is reaching for the hacksaw and Carrie always is like, I don't think so. And then he picks it up and he whips it at the camera. And because it's shot in 3D, if you saw it at the time, it would have felt like that hacksaw was coming right for you. It's just like the last moments. It's so cheesy. It's so good. The first time I watched it, I was like, oh, my God, he threw a hacksaw at the audience. It's 3D. (laughs) (laughs) And... Then we just end with Hoffman being trapped in this bathroom going, no, fuck you. I'll fucking kill you. The end. You have to see Carrie always just show up with like his hammy, give me my check smirk 
I think, to understand. But, like, that moment, I watched these movies for the first time last July, and, like, that moment was the first time that I had felt anything in a little while. It just made me so happy. It was just, like, it hit all of the cheesy, baroque, plot twist, soap opera ending buttons that I had in my heart, and I was just, it was amazing. Totally. Jamel, what are your final Saw thoughts? I find it kind of remarkable that this series went as long as it did if you look at the box office numbers each one did pretty well like audiences kept on coming to see these and some of this is almost certainly because of the the torture porn aspect like people coming to wanting to see how the writers devise traps for people but i i honestly find that stuff not to be the most interesting things or most noteworthy things about these movies. To to go back to Sarah's point in the very beginning, what I think makes this franchise unique is its attempt to be a soap opera, to be this sort of twisty, turny, you know, singular story and not worry too much about coherence or even really continuity. And I think that's I think that's a lot of fun. Like a lot of people, I like watch a lot of franchise stuff these days because that's what, that's what Hollywood is churning out. And I find that this is just a unique kind of franchise that nothing else quite does what it does over as many movies as it does. Those are my, those are my final thoughts on the Saw franchise. Like I will likely at some point next year or this year mm. just watch all these again because they kind of go down pretty smooth. Yeah. Sarah, what are your final Saw thoughts? Yeah, I agree. And I think that, you know, the trouble with a lot of horror franchises, you know, and one example I would cite is the Paranormal Activity movies, which knocked Saw out of the box finally at the end of this this beautiful narrative's long and ridiculous life. A lot of horror franchises become an excuse to make something as cheaply and as lazily as possible and to put as, you know, and found footage is a great way to put relatively little content in. You just have a lot of quiet and then audiences feel scared when they hear something loud you don't have to have a lot happen it's interesting and a little sad to me that this series that i think was created with so much love and was made by a relatively small group of people like this didn't get passed around and this wasn't something that was farmed out as like a let's see how he does like first time as a director project like the same team that was working on this series at the beginning was working on it at the end and every movie delivers so much story so many things happen (laughs) there are so many setups the production values are never great but like there's always just I think a ton of effort visible in this and it bothers me that I think the paranormal activity movies I think are seen as like less damaging than Saw because they're like not violent it's just panning around looking for demons but like to me there's always going to be something weirdly wholesome about the horror movies where like no matter what the how grisly the content is you can tell that like the people who made them had this somehow had a shared vision (laughs) that they put together these movies could have been made with a fifth of the effort that went into them and they weren't and i love that the thing that comes across to me is it seems like everyone involved is having a good time like this doesn't seem like a bummer of a set to have been on yeah yeah they went hard horror fans are very 
dedicated people. And when we find something that we like, then we will will love it forever. And I will love Saw forever. Alex, what are your final thoughts? I dismissed these movies when they came out because I was much more of a snob by way of thinking that like 70s horror and 80s horror was the way to go. And I'm glad I didn't watch them when they came out because I would have been insufferable about it. But I, I'm happy that I have seen them now and the way that I've seen them and have seen a lot of the qualities that you both uh, have talked about. I mean, these are movies that were seemingly very lovingly made. I think the description of, quote, torture porn stuck with me and mm. I took it seriously. And so I, I wrote off the movies. As far as a time capsule for the mid to late aughts go, these are where you want to spend some time. You want to see... Adam's bad jeans in the first movie and you want to see Amanda's weird hair from uh, movies two to three uh, and <laughs> this just reminds of how the uh, the aughts were a lot like now but slightly more gaudy well there's a ton of dads who is the daddy Remind me what what distinguishes the dad from the daddy. We used to ask it as a thirsty question, but now it's more just uh, <laughs> it's like who who carries dadly authority, you know, who stands out maybe as a mensch. Like there's a lot of different a lot of different ways to go with it. I mean, I don't I think the only possible answer you can have for this is it's it's John Kramer. It's Tobin Bell. He is he is the daddy of this series. Mm. He carries it. He has the most dad energy of, of everyone. Like a deranged, evil Bruce Wayne. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, I usually we ask this question because there's someone who's put forth as a father, but they don't kind of carry the authority in one way or another. And Jigsaw is pretty unequivocally the dad in this movie. Sarah, what, what is your take? Oh, I mean, yeah, I think it would be contrary to say anyone but Jigsaw. But I would also say Gilsaw. Because I just like her style. Like, I don't know what it is about her, but I just appreciate that, like, Jigsaw, it just makes sense. It makes so much sense for him as a character that he just has, like, this nice doctor wife who just, like, wants to drink wine, you know, and, like, look out at the lights of the city and just have a nice family and wear wraparound sweaters. And it wasn't to be because she married a burgeoning serial killer. Um, and that happens sometimes, you know, and the series really didn't quite know what to do with that character. But the way that they didn't know what to do with her, I really enjoyed. The, the Tobin Bell is the daddy because he was a guy on the floor and he somehow made this character feel coherent. And like some, I don't know, I think his performance feels to me like it's someone who like, I don't think that he has a philosophy, but I really think he thinks he does. And that makes it feel different. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I agree entirely. Awesome. Jamel, thank you so much for all of your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. My pleasure, as always. All right, everybody, that is it for this week's episode of Why Are Dads. We want to thank, of course, Jamel Bowie for being willing to tarnish his brand with us by talking about the saga. Thank you to Carolyn Kendrick, our producer and music director, for making this episode and for covering, at my request, the Viagra Boys song Worms, which I've become obsessed with over the past few weeks. And when I became obsessed with it, I was like, I know the episode that this might fit into. And she was willing to take it on. I very much appreciate it. I hope you 
you enjoyed it. It's from the band's 2018 EP, Street Worms. You can hear Carolyn's EP, Tear Things Apart, and find various places that she spends time online at carolynkendrick.com. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter. And again, we're on Patreon at Wire Dads. Please come by and say hello on any of these corners of the information superhighway. We would love to see you and love to hear from you. We're working on our schedule that will run through April, and we'll announce that shortly, probably on Twitter and Instagram, and we'll mention it uh, maybe maybe on the next show. In the meantime, come and join us for Citizen Ruth with the wonderful Candace Opera. That's next week, and then after that, we're going to talk about Fargo. That's it for now, everybody. Uh, hopefully, you are having a tremendous week. Who knows? Who knows how the week's going to go? It's hard telling. <laughs> But I hope yours is lovely and you're able to carve out some uh, some wonderful time. All right, everybody. See you soon.